Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Everyone wants to be happy, and we all pursue happiness in different ways. Some people are thrill-seekers, others are homebodies. Some people are loners, others love big families or communities. Some people express things creatively, others consume what is created. Some sing, others listen to music. Where Whatever we find happiness in, we are united by our desire for work that matters and relationships that fulfill. And as Christians, we often fall into the trap of basing our hopes on earthly things, even when we know they only make us happy for a short time. But how are we to experience happiness in this life? How do we avoid expecting too much of earthly things and being disappointed or expecting too little and becoming cynics? Well, in his new book, Recovering Cynic, Barnabas Piper helps us to throw off both the unrealistic expectations that end in disappointment and the guilty sense that Christians are not meant to have fun. He shows how having a clear view of the reality of the fall and the promise of redemption frees us to live a life that is grounded, hopeful, and genuinely happy. Barnabas is an associate pastor at Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, author of a few books, co-host of the Happy Rant podcast, and is a happy husband and father. He's here to talk about his new book, Hoping for Happiness, Turning Life's Most Elusive Feeling into Lasting Reality. Barnabas, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Definitely. Thanks for having me. This is maybe the longest book copy that I have ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kept you kept going and going, and I was like, man, yeah, that's uh, that's substantial. That's all from the uh, from the Amazon page, man. I like, I, I didn't write that. Your your people did, but it's almost like reading the book itself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd prefer if people still bought the book, but if they that's just right. want that summary, it was pretty good. They did a good job. The publisher did. Yeah, the summary is good. It's a good Cliff's Notes version. Uh, but you need to do, yeah, you, you need to get the full book uh, to get the. The full experience. Hey, you are one of the few returning guests, so I hope that you feel very honored by that. I do. It's it's always a little weird when you get invited to be a guest or to speak somewhere, and then you don't get invited back. You just kind of wonder <laughs> what you how disappointing you were. So to get invited back is it's it's very affirming. Can I tell you what's worse though is to get invited back. Uh, like I've done a few uh, either conferences or camps like this where they like you so much they have you back again. And then they have you, you know, like you become a staple and then all of a sudden they don't invite you. <laughs> That's like worse because then you're like, oh, am I like old now or? <laughs> like, yeah, two, two years was good. Three years was, was okay. Four years was too much. That's right. So they, now you're done. I feel like I'm being put out to pasture or something like that when that happens. I'd almost just be invited once and don't invite me back. I, I, I almost prefer that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. It's not, it's not super disappointing. It's just sort of like a, well, okay, I guess, I guess I did something not, not as well as they wanted. But yeah, after going like three or four times and then not getting invited back, then you, yeah, you must have really stepped in it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, hey, so the copy says it describes you as a recovering cynic. And I just want to know, because I do think of you as uh, just your personality and your, your disposition as kind of cynical. I, I would say more sarcastic. I don't know if I would say cynical, but just sort of sardonic, maybe. Um, what does being a recovering cynic entail? And I suppose that has something to do with even the motivation behind this book, your own story mm -hmm. about, about hoping for happiness. Yeah, for me, 
uh, recovering cynic means. So I, I think a, a cynic is somebody, it's, it's not the same as a pessimist. So a pessimist thinks everything is going to go wrong. Okay. A cynic, a cynic is just aware of all the ways something could be less than what you hope it would be. And they just sort of point them out. They're like, well, it's probably not going to be that great. It's kind of that mentality. And so it, it, it puts a ceiling on your ability to enjoy things when you just sort of go into something going, yeah, but it, it, it's probably not going to be awesome. And so whether, and that could be a relationship that could be watching a movie, that could be a new job, whatever it. And so being a recovering cynic for me means finding that balance of realism, which is nothing is perfect. You know, there's nothing is going to be, is, is going to deliver perfect happiness in this life. Okay. That's realistic, but it is good to, to let yourself really enjoy things, to have high expectations, to, um, to, to lean into kind of the, the enjoyment of stuff. And so whether, you know, so for example, just about a year and a half ago, I started uh, on staff at, at a manual. Um, and then just, just a couple of weeks ago was officially voted in as an assistant pastor and a cynical take on that would be sort of a, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting, but also pastoring is going to be a really hard work and just sort of a keeping an eye on the things that won't be awesome. A recovering cynic means that I, I have to very intentionally, and I've been working on this, look at this is an amazing opportunity. Look at these things that, that God has done in my life to get me to this place. Look at these awesome people I get to serve alongside and the congregation of this church that's been so great. And to, to really sort of revel in the goodness of it instead of keeping a ceiling on the, the enjoyment of it. Sure. Now, you kind of tackle this, uh, I don't know if it's a perennial debate, but just this, maybe it's just more of an intramural <laughs> debate, the, the difference between happiness and, and joy. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if you could explain uh, your approach to that. Is there, is there a difference between happiness and joy? Yeah, I, I think the differences between them are, are overblown. Okay. It seems a little bit like sort of a theological semantic uh, gymnastics match when people try to, to parse the two. So I will say there's a version of happiness that has nothing to do with genuine grounded joy in Christ. There's, you know, and we see it all the time, look around and you see people just having a blast in a way that will utterly destroy them. So there's a version of happiness that has nothing to do with joy. But let me pose a question, which is if you take somebody who talks about joy, preaches about joy, writes about joy, is, is all about joy, but doesn't smile very much, <laughs> doesn't have any fun, doesn't like jokes. It, what is that joy? Like it, joy without happiness seems nonsensical to me. And so I think, I don't think there's really a difference. I think the truest version of happiness and the truest version of joy, that Venn diagram overlaps about 90%. Okay. So I don't think that I don't think that every time we're called to find joy in the Lord, we're supposed to have a smile on our face because you can have joy in the midst of of tears. Yeah. But all genuine joy leads to happiness. It leads you to a place of of gratitude, of seeing the good gifts from God, of being able to enjoy those. And and so joy inevitably leads to happiness. 
but there is a version of happiness that that is more worldly. And I think when when people have separated the two, they're just trying to do that. They're saying one of these is worldly and the other is biblical, but they've thrown out happiness uh, completely by doing that. And so I don't I don't think that's a helpful distinction. I see. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the suffering thing because, you know, obviously we're called to rejoice in our sufferings, to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Those things certainly don't make us happy. So what is what does that mean then? What does it mean to have joy in the midst of suffering when it's something that is sad? Because normal, you know, normal people are sad when sad things happen and happy when happy things mm-hmm. happen. But Christians have uh, you know the fruit of the spirit or have the you know holy spirit which is a grounds for joy what does that look like then to be joyful though suffering yeah i think i mean at the at the highest level sort of the 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 highest theological level there is an understanding where we should be joyful for all circumstances in some sense um just in the resting in god's sovereignty but just at an as at a uh, like at an experiential emotional level I think a lot of when I write about happiness, I'm not talking about being happy for the circumstances that are difficult for the suffering as much as happy in them. So, um, you know, you and I have both been through hard things in life, the seasons of life that brought us really, really low. Yeah. And I think the truest, most Christian way to navigate those is to find joy in the midst of them, to find happiness in the midst of them. So, you know, it, with, uh, with church, with friends, with enjoyment, with, you know, so the other things in life that God has given us that can deliver happiness, those are things we can still find joy in, in the midst of suffering. Um, there are still things to be grateful for. There's still something to have your eye on and go, this is an evidence that God is present, that God created a, a world full of good things that God, lo- that God loves me. And so, you know, even if huge swaths of life are an utter disaster, yeah, there's still enjoyment in the midst of. Okay. Do you think that Christians in particular have a happiness problem? And you can interpret that in any way you'd like. <laughs> Do we have a problem with happiness? I, I think Christians in general, those of us who grew up in the in the more conservative evangelical, um, pardon me for using a loaded word, um, uh, back we, we, if we have that background, I yeah. think we have a guilt over happiness problem. Okay. So I think our, I think our problem is because happiness has so often been labeled as worldly, we have a, like a twinge of guilt at just reveling in something, you know, or just beaming about getting a new, whatever it is, a new grill, a new car, a new puppy, whatever. And and so there's a, there's sort of, and, and you see it come out in the way that we talk about these things. So I noticed it most resoundingly when I got a new car a couple of years ago and I felt the compulsion to make excuses about it, even though yeah, yeah. There, there's just no, there's nothing wrong with getting a new car. And it was the car that I'd been eyeing for like 10 years. And I finally got my hands on one and, you know, was in a position to do it. And that's, that should be a matter of just excitement. But instead I was like, well, I got a great deal. I knew somebody at the dealership and kind of, (laughs) you know, trying to talk my way out of anybody thinking I was over, you know, overindulging. So I think our happiness problem for a lot of us is we don't give ourselves permission to just look at things that God has provided for us and say, 
this is amazing. I get to really enjoy this and just be grateful and, and genuinely happy about it. Yeah. Well, and, and the flip side is something you just described implicitly, which is that we don't want other people to be happy <laughs> either, right? We're suspicious yeah. or, or... Sort of judging other people for their lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, now, okay. You, you've been at Emmanuel Church for a while. It's a church that's near and dear to my heart as well, um, both as a member and on staff, but uh, only recently installed as a pastor there. Um, right. I mean, at, at the time we're recording this, it was yeah. what, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago. Something it was like? the, it was the week of Thanksgiving that the congregation voted to call me as assistant pastor. Okay. Yeah. Assistant pastor. So very recent. Yeah. Um, and am I wrong in thinking that your experience at Emmanuel has some influence on your approach to this book? Uh, you're definitely not wrong. Uh, it, it took, so I, I arrived at Emmanuel coming out of, um, a broken marriage and a really just, probably the lowest emotional point of my life and just worn out completely. So sort of worn out spiritually, worn out relationally, not, not, you know, at a place of faith crisis, but just running on empty. And, and the, the culture at Emmanuel, the preaching at Emmanuel, the leadership at Emmanuel, um, all played a role in, in kind of putting me back together and restoring my, you know, just my spiritual energy and my, my joy in the Lord. And, but as part of that, there was, there was never, there there was a, there was a fullness to it that I hadn't experienced elsewhere in terms of the, the freedom to genuinely be happy as you are being sort of theologically built up. And in my life prior to that, it seems like those things had always been sort of on a, on a teeter totter where there's like, you there's happiness and then there's theological, uh, you know, sort of theological rigor, but rarely are you at a place where you're like really trusting in the sovereignty of God and really laughing at a good joke in the space of about a minute and a half, you know? (laughs) And, and that's, it, it was that mentality that I found there. So I, it definitely fed into the writing of this book by, but not in a, um, it didn't inspire me to write it in, in a very overt sense as much as just I, I arrived at a place where I thought, oh, this is what this is what genuous, genuine happiness looks like. Mm. Um, I don't like to write books from an exploratory perspective. You know, I okay. like to to write them once I've I've come to a place where I go, I think I've observed enough or learned enough about this to offer something helpful. So not the final word, but some conclusions on this thing. And so Emmanuel helped get me to that place where I thought, okay, this is a framework for happiness that I feel like I can genuinely offer um, that I would not have been able to three, four, five years ago. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, the the community um, is so forming and shaping in ways that I don't even think we realize, um, and especially a gracious community, a, a gospel-shaped community for those who are just hungry and desperate. I, I, I remember, gosh, I, it, it might've been the, the fifth year anniversary or, or, or so, uh, we were visiting in Nashville and, and we attended on Sunday morning. And I remember because it was on the occasion, it might've been further along than, than five years because the place was really full and it was much different than I remembered visiting early on. Um, Ray planted around the same time that, that I had in Nashville. And, when we came and I was living in Vermont by then, we came back 
And I remember when there weren't a lot of people there, and then suddenly there were. And I remember him <laughs> describing, um, like, how the church was formed. And he, he basically said something like, um, we, you know, it was a, a small group of broken people who showed up and had nothing to offer except their brokenness. And, and the Lord made something beautiful out of it. And it was such a deep lesson for me in that moment, the, the, the things that we do to kind of rah-rah cheerlead people up. And especially in Nashville, I mean, you know, you know, what, <laughs> yeah. what church is quote unquote supposed to be like. And, you know, Ray didn't do that. Emmanuel Church didn't do that. He, he simply brought the word and, and cared for people and spoke to people where they were and just handed their brokenness over. And gosh, mm-hmm. how, how joy giving that, that has to be for people who are desperate for it. Well, yeah. And for, and for people who are so tired, yeah. you know, maybe don't even know how tired they are to arrive there and just kind of persistently be told, no, no, you, you don't need to do anything to, to, to impress, to earn, to get ahead. This is a place of you bring your need and the people will gather around you in prayer and support in, in kind of mutual need. And there's just a, there's a simplicity to it that, um, that, you know, now that I'm, now that I'm on the pastoral side of things, I feel a great responsibility to how do, how do we continue to foster this as the church changes and grows? You know, Ray has retired as the senior pastor. He's still very involved, but he's not the lead pastor now. So what, how do we as a, as a pastoral team under, you know, the leadership of TJ Tim's continue that. And it's, um, in a, in a city like Nashville that is so built on impressing people, and there are, you know, and there are insanely impressive people all over the place. Um, it is, it is an oasis to walk in and go. Impressiveness here just doesn't count for anything. We don't judge you for it. Yeah. We, we love impressive people, but we love them the same way as we love unimpressive people because <laughs> the the need is the thing, and the gospel is the answer. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I first encountered the phrase, "What if God cares more for your holiness than your happiness?" in a book by Gary Thomas, that really helped me um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, you have a chapter addressing that dichotomy, though, what, what can appear to be a false dichotomy, that God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. What are you saying in, in that chapter about the, the holiness-happiness uh, bifurcation or the alleged, I guess, you know, yeah. division there? Yeah, I, I encountered that. I encountered the attitude of it long before I knew who Gary Thomas was. I, I remember reading it in something that he wrote, and he's obviously a much more biblically grounded, nuanced, deep thinker who, you know, so he he's not, I don't think he's creating a false dichotomy, but people use that phrase in a way that pits holiness and happiness against each other. And I think what that ends up doing is it, it, Again, like we talked about earlier, it puts happiness in the category of kind of cheap, trite, meaninglessness, which then creates guilt for being happy. And it puts holiness in the category where if, if happiness is removed from holiness, then it doesn't it doesn't sound very appealing, frankly. You know, it, it sounds like drudgery, yeah. not not something enjoyable. Now, granted, every person who is following Christ knows that growing in holiness is not always enjoyable. You know, sometimes it's, sometimes it feels more like amputation, you know, or physical therapy <laughs> where you're just getting put through the, the grinder on the, to, to grow and have stuff worked out of your life. But ultimately, if you're genuinely pursuing happiness in, in, 
in the way that God intends, and you're genuinely pursuing holiness, growing in Christ likeness, those two things feed one another. And so I think, um, I think we need to be careful in saying, you know, holiness, not happiness. I would say happiness through holiness. But I would also say if you're pursuing happiness in the right way, you're also growing in holiness. So they, it becomes a, a feeding cycle as opposed to a, a dichotomy, I think. Yeah. Okay. I guess I can appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound like it. You sound skeptical. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, I'm down. I'm definitely down with that. And and it's something that um, I, I think. I think you're right that we, uh, unfortunately or unhelpfully, uh, divide the two too much, especially when you think about biblical, you know, when you think about joy, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 but yeah, and I'm concerned as you would be about the idea that, that God doesn't care about our happiness or that he's, he's disinterested in, in our flourishing and, you know, in our joy, that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, I totally, um, I'm on the same page with you there. I think so even if, if we're going to tie together some of the ideas we've talked about earlier, we talked about, you know, suffering and what is what is sort of happiness look like in the midst of that for somebody who's growing in holiness. So growing in awareness of God, in Christ likeness, in, you know, essentially growing out of sin uh, in, or, or in the ability to resist temptation, there's a that that feeds the ability to find happiness in the midst of suffering because you have a deeper well of things for which to be grateful and things to enjoy and a perspective on the world around you that's because your perspective is shaped by God at that point, not by circumstance. And so holiness feeds that happiness in the same way if we are perpetually enjoying things with just this, this perspective and this mindset of this is a good gift from God. It's not all, it's not a, it's not an ultimate thing, you know, this, this cheeseburger, this song, this movie, but it's a good gift from God. That's perpetually tying us back to a, a God centered mindset, which is, you know, pretty important for growing in holiness. So there's, it, it, I think, I think the reason those get pitted against each other, like I said, is the misdefining of happiness okay. as, as outside of a God centered mind. It's worldly. And sure, if that's how you define happiness, then it, 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 is, it is opposed to holiness. I just don't think that's the definition of happiness. I think that's a false definition that diminishes both happiness and the pursuit of holiness. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that God is the center of your happiness and therefore radiating out from his centrality is enjoyment of, of, of his good gifts. And in fact, it would be uh, a strange and unloving father to give you a gift and then not want you to enjoy it, right? Right. Um, you know, to say, here's something great. It tastes good, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are parameters around how to enjoy it. But I, you know, but to say, I don't want you to enjoy it at all, um, I, I think, you know, diminishes both the gift and, of course, you know, the giver of the gift um, as well. Here's a question um, I'm asking uh, a lot of our guests right now. And I don't know if you're in the, um, in the, in the profit game here or, or, uh, <laughs> the, the, the biblical profit, not, yeah, we want you to sell books. So we want you to have the P R O F I T, uh, game, but, right. uh, pr- to be prophetic or predict or be a, yeah, yeah. Again, the prognostication here. Um, what will the church in the United States look like in five years? What do you think? Yeah, I, 
I think it will be even more polarized than it is now. Oh, goody. <laughs> but I think that will be to the benefit of churches that are genuinely built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm. not built on, you know, um, whether it's false doctrine or political ideology or call it political idolatry, whatever. So I, I just, the, I think what will happen is that those churches that are more built around that things, whether it's nationalistic or uh, prosperity gospel or whatever, are going to be more and more obviously distinct from those churches that are built on a genuine gospel of Christ seeking to see the restoration of souls and society in a, in a meaningful, um, you know, restorative way. And, and so I, I think, I think it will be more frustrating in some ways, but I think it will be helpful, uh, to those of us who want to, you know, continue down that, that faithful gospel track, because it'll just, the people who want the true things of Christ are going to find us. And, you know, there, there will be a sort of a, a, a light against the darkness aspect that I think is harder to find right now. Um, and maybe I feel that way, particularly because, you know, I, I, I serve in the Bible belt. And so it's very muddy. Mm. What separates a genuinely healthy biblical church from another kind of church. You know, it's, it's hard to tell people what is, what is different about our church than, than that church or that kind of thing. But I think in five years, it's going to be more obvious. Um, and so the, the faithful churches will stand out more. We might struggle more in some ways, yeah. but we're going to, but we're going to stand out more as offering something that cannot be found anywhere else. I like that. That's good. It's positive. I appreciate yeah, that. I don't, brother. Yeah. Well, I'm not worried about the trajectory of the church that is built on Jesus Christ because, you know, he's got us. We're good. <laughs> he, he, just go, go read John 14 to 17 and, and you'll, you'll feel pretty good about where the church will be until Jesus comes back. If we stay faithful. Excellent. And what a good word to end on. We've been speaking with Barnabas Piper, author of the new book, hoping for happiness, turning life's most elusive feeling into lasting reality is published by the good book company. And who doesn't want some happiness right now? Go pick up this book. It's, it's sold wherever Good books are sold. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And listeners, always, if you like the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.